0: I have a hypothesis that long term business success is dependent on A, the quality of the CEO and B, that the qualities of that CEO includes things like ethics and integrity and blah, blah, blah. My guest
1: on the One-Eyed Man podcast today is a gentleman by the name of Roan Belchers, who I first met uh, when he had the unenviable task of facilitating a group of about 30 entrepreneurs on a trip to San Francisco. This a couple of years ago. I was part of a delegation, if you like, a network of entrepreneurs that went uh, to Silicon Valley to meet with a series of businesses who we deemed to be particularly innovative or disruptive, and then to take some of those lessons and bring them back to South Africa. Rowan had the task of putting together the program, organizing travel logistics, booking hotels and restaurants, an absolute night. Me, a uh, r- real uh, cat herder supremo, um, but I really came to appreciate his really considered approach to leadership, his ability to come up with piercing and interesting questions. I learned a lot about how to get the best out of a group uh, from Rowan, and he's gone on to build a really interesting leadership development consultancy called Lockstep. And is involved in a project called the CEO project which seeks to define or redefine the nature of what a CEO needs to be and do in the modern world of business and society. We had a great discussion about a wide range of things but not least of which what it means to be a CEO today, why the role is changing and how to ask beautiful questions that reposition CEOs for impact, for sustainability, and ultimately also for profitability in this new and exciting world. Enjoy the show. Rowan, my good friend, so good to have you in Johannesburg. Um, real pity that you forgot that we were recording in studio today. Oh um, my <laughs> I
0: can't believe
1: you opened that. Holy. let's tell the, let's tell the true story tell the true story all right so the true story is that going back to last night i messaged <laughs> let's not go that far back i messaged roan at quarter to two saying i hope that you're still good for the show i've uh, i'll send you a Zencaster link it'll be in your lockstep email address and roan says uh, yeah i'm on the way to studio to meet you there but i'll be there at five to two and i'm like oh, at okay. which point i might your,
0: be a little bit late your nervous system spiked <laughs> yeah. your heart started beating faster a little sweat yeah, but so anyway. my, my wearable will give us a, a little spike in the last uh, 15 minutes.
1: Exactly. But yes, yeah, so uh, thank you for being patient um, and not leaving the studio when realizing that I'd be 15 minutes late. But sir, for, for listeners that might not know um, who you are and what it is that you're passionate about, can you talk a little bit about Lockstep and more specifically about the CEO project?
0: I can, Mike. Thank you. Um, so I always think with the answers to these questions, you can give the dry technical question mm-hmm. or you can give the juicy informal one. Yeah. I'm going to give the juicy informal one. Cool. So I really care about the world being a good place. It's a trite statement, but mm-hmm. it's the truth. And the most um, effective lever that I can see out there is the CEO because of the the resources, the opportunity, the influence that CEOs have. So I developed this deep, deep, deep fascination with the CEO position 10 or so years ago. And I spent the last 10 years trying to codify it, understand it. I even created a term called CEOship so that it separates itself from leadership. Mm-hmm. But the quick answer to your question is that I think leadership is a major solve to a lot of the ills that we face in the world. And that is why I'm interested in leadership and particularly the CEO position. So I interviewed Dr. Louise van Rijn a couple of
1: episodes ago. In fact, it was the last episode of the uh, social entrepreneurship season that I did. And um, she'd done some work in thinking about how she could have the most significant impact on education by understanding the school ecosystem and identified if you can positively impact and transform the effectiveness of principles that immediately is going to have the broadest, deepest impact on the school system in turn. What I'm hearing is that you feel the same way about how do you change the world? You change the corporate CEO, or at least you harness the corporate CEO's ability to affect change. Am I hearing that right?
0: Totally right. So Louise, I would use even stronger words than maybe you or Louise did, What I've noticed in working with CEOs is that it is the extent of the influence that they have that is unknown and unappreciated and underestimated. And that gives me hope because what these people can do from their position at the center of the system is radical. It Mm. really is Mm. radical. So if I'm looking purely for sort of return on effort, there is no greater opportunity that I can see out there than the principal in Louise's world and the CEO in my world. So the one counter to
1: that, and I've got to be careful here that I don't sound like I occupy this position because I am, or at least was by definition, a corporate CEO or company CEO. But there is a school of thought that would say that a lot of the inequality, social ills, you started off the bat by saying, I want I want the world to be a good place, a better place a lot of the things that are not great about the world, there is a big school of thought that says the corporate CEO has been an agent of that dysfunction, has been an active part of creating those ills, or at least indirectly causing uh, some of them. Is your thinking in terms of working with the corporate CEO about cost correction? I mean, can you fix something that's broken or fix the thing that's causing the brokenness if that's the case or you know or is this about you know mike that's a little bit of a jump to suggest that everything that's wrong in the world is is as a direct result of the corporate ceo where do you stand on that sort of thinking
0: well if you notice my language i said leverage but Mm -hmm. i didn't say positive leverage so leverage can go both ways sure and i think the really poor ceo the un the ineffective or the a CEO with bad intentions can cause major, major damage because of this leverage. Yeah. So historically that leverage I think has gone the other way. And there's tons of examples of, of really ineffective, poorly developed, irresponsible CEOs, mm. but there's a, there's a change in wind direction. Mm-hmm. And with younger people, moving into the CEO position, there is a difference in how CEOs show up these days. And it's much more, and I know servant leadership is a bit of a trite term, but leadership at the CEO position comes much more from the place of service than it used to be. Um, And that to me is a very, very uh, encouraging wave to ride. So you you describe a a change in wind direction,
1: (laughs) and and now you've used the metaphor of the wave, the the changing tide. What's changing? Why is the typical CEO being asked to react or
0: adapt or develop their skills in a different way? What's changed? I think a few things. Um, The first thing I'd say is consciousness, and that's that's a messy term, and it means a whole lot of different things to a lot of different people. But the position now is being undertaken with more consciousness than it used to be. Mm. So, it used to be about driving a PL, mm. a very narrow deliverable, not unimportant, but certainly not the whole game. And so, the, the consciousness that's being brought to the position is broadening the skill set that CEOs now realize they have to have. So, for instance, just to make it really clear self knowledge mm. that's a given for CEOs now. That was absolutely not a given 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And so if you look at those sorts of things filtering through the CEO fraternity, that's one of 25 themes that I could name for you. But that's not really my question. My question is not so much what
1: is the CEO having to do, it's more why is the CEO having to do that? What is it that's changing in the world or even in the world of business that is forcing a new breed of CO to emerge willingly or unwillingly, why, why the change? What, if you had to describe the change in one direction,
0: what name do you give it? Um, even though you don't like the answer to my question, I'm going to give you consciousness again, um, <laughs> because you know if you look at what's being taught in schools and you see your seven year old coming home with a much greater concern for the planet than you had, that's a change of consciousness that's being foisted upon you by wanting to be a good parent you want to be in alignment with what your child values. So that's just one small way that consciousness gets forced upon the CEO. The second part of my answer is that sometimes the CEO position is called a super job. And mm. I love that term because it, ex- it, it explains or describes just how massive the CEO role is now. I almost think I'm, I'm almost at the place where I don't think a, a CEO position of a big global company can be done by one person anymore. Hmm,
1: okay, that's it. And I want to put a pin in that because I think that's really worth exploring. I love that idea. So so if we, if, let's use a random example of like a General Motors, right? Is the difference then, and, and this is what I'm hearing, so correct me if I'm wrong, what would probably have been a gentleman taking that seat in 1980 or 1985, the Jack Welch world, Right? versus what will probably be a lady taking that seat today is the difference not so much the room the desk or even the business that they're in but the nature of the world around them and how aware they need to be of that in order to maintain a successful sustainable trajectory Mm, is that what's changed
0: absolutely so let's take um gm general motors um run by a woman mary barra Mm -hmm very very well and highly considered in the world and as an illustration of just how much things have changed i forget the exact nature of the controversy but i think gm was hiding information about exploding components in a car or oh, wow. okay. or an accelerator that accelerated in a vehicle without being pressed and so they had lots of accidents of cars careering forwards mm-hmm. so instead of hiding all that Mary's approach to the congressional hearings around it was absolute 100% transparency, 100% ownership of the fault, and 100% ownership of the correction of that fault. Mm -hmm. So the whole tone of the conversation, the nature of it, was completely different to what it might have been 10, 15 years ago, where it might have been about stalling, maybe about lobbying Congress to downplay the matter. It just was a complete inversion of how that would have been handled in the past. And that, I don't think it's as as simple as putting it down to um, gender difference. It's absolutely not that. It was just the quality of person that Mary is Mm. and how that showed up in the business context of this controversy. So again, like it, it all comes down to the quality of the individual. Mm. And that's why I love my work because I'm not only working with really ambitious people who are up for a really challenging journey, but they also are really up for going into themselves and finding the very best of themselves so that they can manifest that as a CEO. I heard this great thing the other day. I hope I get it right. It's called the hunger quotient. Hmm? Have you ever heard of it? Mm -mm. So the hunger quotient boils down to ambition – Plus talent, minus distractions. Okay. It's a cool idea. Yeah. And um, the hunger quotient in CEOs is invariably high. Hmm. And that's why I love working with CEOs because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty into my work and uh, I work well when my energy is matched by hmm. my clients hmm. and CEOs generally are assured of matching me Um at least for energy, not, not an ability. I'll doff my cap to their greater ability, but certainly in energy for the role, energy for growth, and energy for the tool that their business can be in the world. And one of the things that I'm bringing into the, the world of CEOship is the fact that that business, I use the word tool, but actually the word I use with my CEO clients is jewel, to consider their businesses as jewels that are forever being polished. Hmm. sparkling in the world, putting out great people into the world and into their communities and into their families, all of which can be accomplished through businesses. And historically, those same sorts of societal contributions came from churches and maybe the army um, and those sorts of you know, schools, universities, those big institutions. The vehicles of meaning. Yeah. Vehicles of meaning. But I do believe, Mike, and I believe this strongly, that business is going to take over, if it hasn't already, as being the most powerful tool in society. And when government and civil society and business start to create a little nexus where they all come together, I think that is where we're going to see the needle moving on some really big problems in the world, but also the needle moving on performance and business performance and profitability and and all of those things that are being seen in a more wise, intelligent light these days. You can see my energy for it coming out. And now. I love that. And so I'm going to allude to a, a phrase that I used as
1: I stumbled in rather late to our uh, recording session earlier on. Around, you Emphasis know, on the word stumble? St- stumbled, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, <laughs> just because you can doesn't mean you should. Sorry. Now, I, I wrestle a lot with this element, this thing that you've just spoken about when it comes to... Businesses taking on some of the humanity that maybe we've lost in other more traditional institutions, or the the question I want to ask is is should business be doing that and invariably, my instinctive answer is yes, businesses should be able to address what is and certainly seems to be an increasing amount of complexity and need in the world um that's something that we talk about a lot on the show i mean it's one of the fundamental proponents of of our mission, our discussion is the world is getting more complex and more unpredictable. So what do we do with that? How do we lead in that circumstance? However, there is an assumption that I want to pull apart with you that businesses must be good, must be sustainable, and must be considered and must be intentional to be successful. Because I know that you and I toot that horn, but the reality of it is that out there in the world, that's not always the case you can be quite shitty and still be enormously successful. So so <laughs> the question is, after that diatribe, and sorry for that, is do you have to be a good person
0: to be an effective CEO? Yes. Okay. If you take the long view. Okay. So that's the caveat. That's the caveat. And I'm going to go back to some language you used um, mm. a few sentences ago when you said, should business take on these problems? Hmm. So my sense is that they aren't taking on anything. They should be relishing these problems because in these problems lies commercial gain. Mm. So if you look, I don't know what your relationship with Patagonia is, but it's the most extreme company out there in terms of its goodness, right? Mm. Patagonia is incredibly commercially successful because of how they are in the world. When I see the Patagonia brand now, I have this flood of good thoughts that come through me. I don't mm. even like the brand that much visually, mm. but I love the brand for what it does. And I buy Patagonia stuff because of what they're doing in the world. So I don't see it as an obligation. I see it as an opportunity. And that's one of the big turns that I wish CEOs could start to, to make is that they say um, being a good business is good for business and that's a nice, trite, neat line. But actually... There is a huge commercial opportunity awaiting the fast movers who can see it for what it is. It's not an obligation. It is an opportunity. So I I sort of see this argument a little bit differently. Mm. Getting back to your very pertinent and searching question about whether you have to be a good person to exist to be effective. To be effective. So here's my take on that. And I'm going to use ShopRite as an example. Mm. And, I, and I don't, I really have nothing against ShopRite. In fact, I appreciate ShopRite because they challenge my hypothesis. So ShopRite, by most people's estimations, is a very difficult place to work. It's quite hard. Mm. Um, it's quite punishing. Mm. But yet, their commercial success over time has been astonishing. Mm. They've gone into Africa and succeeded mostly so many others have failed yeah all others Mm. i can't think of of one example yeah uh yes to a greater or lesser degree yeah Yeah. some fines in nigeria might have uh fine 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 fine. um but but yes that's probably a good example so my take is that you can you can be a company that goes against the grain of today but have something in your business which is so strong that it lets you sort of live a life that's relatively more extended than the next business. And, mm. and what ShopRite got right was you know, how to, how to be a big FMCG company, negotiate hard with suppliers and send stuff in a really tightly controlled distribution channel across a continent. That's going to last them a long, 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 long time. Hmm. However, there are some winds of change that ShopRite would be well advised to look at if they are to maintain that position of superiority and competitiveness. Mm. So that's why in the long term is an, a very important caveat. You can succeed in the short term. And, you know, dot-com bubble companies, that, they're thousands. I've been part of one when I lived in San Francisco. Short term is easy. You can fool a lot of people. Venture capital money can make your P&L look very different to what it really is. There's lots of hides. But in the long term… I think a good person and I guess what I should challenge you on is does good mean effective or does good mean wholesome mm. in your, in your Well, I think context. that's why I use those two words quite specifically. So
1: when I use the word good in, in context of a good person, it, it doesn't mean are they successful? It doesn't mean objectively that they've been achieved some level of material success, but there I'm talking about integrity. I'm talking about moral standing. I'm talking about authenticity. Some of the things that you spoke about earlier, when I'm talking about an effective business, that's also something that we could unpack, right? Because surely, yes, you must enjoy some growth. You must enjoy um, some profitability. Uh, you must have, hopefully, some semblance of well-being and health and happiness or fulfillment amongst your employees so that they stay there and continue to add value in their communities and so on. So there are a number of different metrics that we could include into effective business. But even if we just took the measure of commercial success.
0: Does that change your answer at all? No, not really. Um, Look, I'll give you an example. One of the things I work with CEOs on is bias and acknowledging and owning the bias that we have on any given topic. Mm. My bias is being exposed here. Not exposed in a bad way, but it's being surfaced. Mm. I have a hypothesis that long-term business success is dependent on A the quality of the CEO and B that the qualities of that CEO includes things like ethics and integrity and blah, blah, blah. I spoke to 15, 16, 17 fund managers at the end of last year. And I gave this spiel Mm. and it did not land. It didn't land unfavorably, but they certainly didn't buy my hypothesis. Mm. And so It's important to acknowledge A, my bias and B, the fact that I live in a bubble of consciousness. You know, I I move around in a world of very highly educated people. Mm. That's not the world out there. Mm. So I'm aware of my position and where my views are formed. But if I was to give a crisp answer to your question, my biases aside, in the long term, and it's not the case now, but in the long term, I think those qualities are absolutely vital and necessary for business success. So so I ask this because this is,
1: as I said, this is the question that I obsess over. And I obsess over it because I share your bias. I instinctively want to believe that your business does need to be intentional. Your culture does need to be human-centric. You as a leader need to be considered and deliberate and conscious if you're going to build an organization of any consequence in today's world. Why? Because it is increasingly by some of the measures that we consider to be important, unequal, unpredictable, and complex. Some of the arguments against that are, but there are many examples of businesses that are extraordinarily successful, certainly commercially, that are run by extraordinarily questionable <laughs> characters, regardless of their, you know, their orientation, their, uh, whatever demographic it is that you're picking. There are people that are not good using our definition, that are very successful, extremely successful in the public sector, in the private sector, and in civil society. However, and here's here's why I love what you said earlier on, it's difficult to imagine extrapolating that success over a 5 to 10 to 15 to 20-year time frame. And that's why this question of long-term leadership, long-term uh, efficacy, effectiveness, I think is a very interesting metric to use because when you introduce all the variables that come with a longer time frame, some of those things start to show up as being massively risky, right So I just want to share quickly when i when I'm doing workshops with people, and this is exclusively around the idea of digital transformation, which is a very small part of the leaders' consideration set. The first question I ask is, how long do you want your company to be around for? <laughs> And they're like, what does that have to do with digital transformation? And I say, everything. Because transformation is not a project. It's not a, it's not a steer code. It's not an initiative. It's not a job description. It's a, an ongoing commitment to a different type of behavior in order to achieve different goals or be adaptable in different circumstances. The point I'm making is that I don't think you can be any other type of leader if you take a long view. So how do you train leaders to take a longer view on value creation, on efficacy, on profitability? Is that part of the work that you're doing and how do you do it? So
0: I would change long-term to mid-term okay. because I don't think these changes are very far away. Mm-hmm. And I think they're upon us. In terms of the arguments about whether our view is valid or not, I don't think that a majority of the educational institutions in the world and a majority of the business schools in the world can all be wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone has kind of accepted that the modern way to lead or the current way to lead is this way. So those are my answers about time horizon. Mm. What I'd say also, Mike, is this. CEOs don't have to walk on water and we must be careful not to paint CEOs into that corner. Mm. Elon Musk, as an example, is anything but holier than thou. Mm-hmm. But what he is is consistent in his inconsistency, or is, you know, he's a mercurial guy. At least mm-hmm. he's consistent in that, and he's kind of unapologetic in his way. Mm. That's what I encourage all CEOs to do. I call it finding their genius, and I don't mean genius in the IQ, you know, mm. know all way. I mean it. Mike, what is the thing that you brought to Cerebra when you were CEO there that was uniquely Mike Stopforth, that only Mike Stopforth couldn't do or be, and the activities that came from that person, you, were uniquely Mike Stopforth type of activities or actions. That's what's important for me, Hmm. to get really clear on what your gifts are, and then to turn the volume super high, as, as high as you can on those gifts. So Ray Dalio, the CEO of Bridgewater, super out there guy, but you know, he's got his thing. He's refined and perfected his thing and it works for him. It absolutely would not work in Morgan Stanley or any of those sorts of other financial institutions, but it works for him. So this is the thing about CEOship: is it's about finding your gifts knowing them really well, refining them, and implementing them. You don't have to be perfect. It's fine not to be perfect as long as you are aware of where you aren't perfect. That's all it takes. So I'm not setting such a high bar for CEOs. I'm just saying, folks, know who you are. Do your work to know who you are. Really do your work and then lead from that place.
1: Which goes back to that earlier point you were making around... The, the way we think about the CEO role in future might not necessarily be about an individual. It might be about a team. And what I'm hearing you say is that if you do play to those strengths, and I love that uh, turning up the volume metaphor, that, that you're going to need to surround yourself with people that bring the genius that you don't. Um, or that you lack or, you know, mm. especially if you are focusing and turning up in, in that space to extremes, that's going to take up energy and time and bandwidth yeah. and, and you'll probably be significantly less effective in the other realms that are important to run any organization of, you know, of any level of complexity. So how do you think about building CEO teams If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back
0: to the show. Can I just say one thing on this on the super job nature of, of um, the CEO, then I'll get to teams. It was interesting. I was writing an article this morning talking about potential. I love the idea of potential mm. because you never get to the end of it. Mm. You know, It's this beautiful runway that never ends of upside. Mm. And so for an optimist and an idealist like me, that's, a, that's got a that's good vibe a good idea. to it. Yeah. Yeah. I was writing about the concept of range – the range a CEO needs to have in terms of knowledge range, Hmm. awareness range. And that range over the last 25 years has gone from narrow to like miles wide. And so that's where the super job notion comes from Hmm. is that it is just impossible for a CEO to understand, you know, take the term organizational design Hmm. for your listeners. It talks about how you arrange the building blocks of your company so that they are as enabling as possible for your business, whatever mm. that is. Mm. Now, organizational design wasn't even around 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. Your business was your organogram. You had one person at the top, a few people below them, and then all the little surfs below that level of management. That's not the case anymore. It wasn't the case before COVID, and it's definitely not the case now. Yeah. So how does a CEO just willy-nilly add that to what they need to mm. understand and into their knowledge range? it's a really, really difficult thing to do, which is where my contention comes from that um, it possibly is a two-person job. Hmm. Ask me the question about teams again so that I can... Um, well, no,
1: that is actually, that's helpful. That's the same answer, essentially. When I was referring to team, I was referring to that super job dynamic ah. where you have potentially the 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 wizard in one area complementing the wizard. I mean, we see this a lot, certainly in... in and I know you do a lot of work with SME size businesses that are not necessarily bulky corporates, yes. and how important partnership becomes to the SME CEO. And it's almost sad in a way that once it translates to the corporate world, you know, you look at the typecast uh, Adrian Gores so or the that looks like it's a very lonely job. <laughs> Um, extraordinary levels of responsibility, accountability, and we do see certain personalities really shining in their ability to take on that mantle. And I suppose they have a board, but it does look super lonely uh, up there. Um, is that your understanding of it, or is it very, is it very different when you look at the the typical CEO in the SME landscape versus the corporate
0: landscape? That's a good question. My answer is not clear because I see evidence of both. I think it's a a cliche, not in a bad way, that the CEO position is a lonely position, Hmm. but I do not see any reason why that has to be the case. Hmm. Hmm. Those are choices the CEO makes. And this is one of the things that intrigues me about CEO work is that there's an inheriting that happens. Hmm. So a new CEO walks into a position previously held by another CEO and kind of just takes the shirt off his or her back and puts it on. Yeah. Now, for me, that is insane because, A, it stops progress. B, there's no, there's no telling that the original way is going to suit that CEO's way. Sure. So, so there needs to be a redesign of it. And if the prior CEO was lonely, there are myriad ways not to be isolated as a CEO. Mm. Forums, coaches, advisory panels, boards. Uh, you know, It's a choice to be lonely. Yeah. Yes, I think the the ultimate accountability, it's a pressurizing reality, mm. but that's different to doing it on your own. Mm. You don't sure. have to do it on your own. You can be accountable and also in partnership. Totally. And I think in the world we're living in now, and I think it will become even more this way, the ability to partner is one of those high EQ mm. skills, the ability to collaborate. And there's a ton of literature about this. This isn't my idea. Mm. But the ability to partner seamlessly, I think, is going to, um, it's going to come at a premium. And I think for the CEO who understands, take Costco, for instance, mm. a very fascinating company in the USA. Their it's strategy, my, my favorite case study as well. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. Costco, their strategy is inherently tied into the communities around their mm-hmm. stores. Mm-hmm. And when they open a store, the first thing they do at least according to what I've read, is that they go and reach out. Is yeah. that right? Is that what you've heard as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a personal experience.
1: Of, um, lucky enough, well, we met on a on a trip to Silicon Valley to go and meet with a whole bunch of leaders and game changers and shakers and movers that were doing cool stuff. And I had a subsequent trip where we met with Costco. They were one of the businesses that we had an opportunity to meet with. We walked into this um, very understated HQ you know, very humble. There was a, I remember there was like quite a large room that was clearly used for big gatherings. But we were a relatively small group, and there was a a whole bunch of seats in the middle of the room in sort of cinema style seating, and in a, a makeshift podium with one of those pull down screens and the and the laptop and projector ready to go. And in the corner of the room on the right, as you walked in, there was a a couple of trestle tables with some foam cups and and a, and a man making a shame. This little dude in a uh, his slacks and his Crocs making coffee for us and and greeting everybody. And then once we got our coffee, we went and sat down and the same guy that was serving us coffee shuffled over to the stage, climbed up and said, Hey, I'm whoever it was. I'm the CEO of Costco. No way. Yeah. And (laughs) that was, that was my first experience of that business. I didn't even know what they did or who they were, but that was my first impression and everything I understood from, because they actually shared with us their induction presentation and Mm. it looked like it'd been made by a six year old because it wasn't fancy at all and it wasn't polished, but it just, it said, this is who we are. This is what we do extremely well. And we do it with absolute commitment and passion. And and, yeah. g-
0: and generosity.
1: Yes, but, but, not, but not for, for the, the sake stuff. of it. Not for the sake of being generous. Because it is inherently held that that is the way mm. to be successful. Not, not it's a nice thing to do after we make money. It's that that's how we make money. We make money by being considered. Um, and if you can be Costco, and you can compete in what is arguably the the most disrupted business sector in the world right now, you know, retail mm. in North America, then there's got to be something going on there that it's it's just a relentless commitment to the basics, <laughs> and and the basics are humanity. That's one of the things that's built into their their basics. Can I can I share another story quickly? So, sorry, because
0: yeah, now you've got me riffing, but um, I thought this was podcast with me as the guest but anyway so you did say before this that you wanted to have a conversation and i said i'm yes. going to yes, be yes. careful what
1: you wish for all right? <laughs> we also visited uber on that same trip and that was a very different experience for me my, my experience of uber and i've got to be careful because i know that that organization has itself reinvented mm-hmm. and done a very good job of seeking out the type of leadership that can take it to the next level of evolution but my there, there was an overwhelming sense of frenzy in that business. I f- of I felt like I'd been dropped into shark infested waters, um, and and it, it was it was frenzied. And I remember us asking the question around self driving cars, autonomous vehicles, and what that might mean for Uber's existing business model. And the answer was, I don't really know. I'm sure, our partners will figure something out. I can't say that that's their position today. Mm-hmm. But when we asked the same question in terms of what automation, artificial intelligence and innovation meant to Costco, they said, this is something we obsess over. This is something that keeps us up at night. We know we have to innovate. We know that there is incredible technology available for us to deliver value to our customers in exciting new ways. However, self-driving trucks means 800 people in our business out of a job. That's a problem for us. So we're not thinking about whether or not we'll use self-driving trucks. We know that autonomous vehicles are going to become a part of our future, our supply chain, the delivery, fulfillment altogether. But how do we make sure that 800 people keep their jobs and are still fulfilled and have a function to play in this business? And I thought, wow, that that's a very interesting way to think about that problem, which is how we should all, I
0: guess, be thinking about that particular challenge. But yeah, sorry. Well, well maybe, Mike. I, I don't know. Um I'm going to nerd out a little bit on organizational Please. design, if Geek. I may. Um, so just to get technical for a second, the work I do is about the relationship that exists between the system leader, mm-hmm. which is generally the CEO, mm-hmm. and the system. Mm-hmm. Okay, and And figuring out the very best of the CEO that can be amplified into the system so that the system and the CEO are two versions of the same thing okay okay now if a company does not have the ceo that costco has and the culture that costco has and the people that costco has and the history that costco has they should not try to emulate costco of course yeah because that cap will simply not fit yeah so it's like
1: me trying to emulate lebron james there are inherent problems with that ambition. Oh, my, yeah. We
0: could be here all day on the problems with that comparison. <laughs> yeah, it's um, just not going to happen. Not going to happen. Same for me. I'm in the same boat. And so this is where the beauty of business comes in. And I'm so passionate about this that I I, I feel like standing up and shouting this from the rooftops. Business is a beautiful, complex, almost artistic thing. Mm. It is not the dry, rigid, wooden commercial driving engine that most people know it to be or machine yeah so you're saying it's an organism not a machine it's an organism that is alive that wants to be great that's full of people that inherently kind of want to be better versions of themselves and they can all look different so think about the companies we've talked about so far gm patagonia costco and tesla Mm. They all just need to be good at what they are. Mm. They should not emulate each other. Mm. And so, the problem I have with business literature is that there's a lot of, you know, six steps to great leadership. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, those cannot be, th- there may be some commonalities in there. They are not accurate statements because it totally depends on the system or the business that the leadership takes place in. Mm. So, so, there's no one way. And if people really want to seek out performance and strive for their full potential, there has to be an acknowledgement of the fact that businesses are malleable, are different, are changing, evolve all the time. They are alive organisms that respond to stimuli. And the system leader or the CEO is the main stimuli giver. So if, if a business is an organism
1: and... The CEO is a major determinant of the health and growth and advancement of that organism. Are they the brain or the heart?
0: That's a weasel question that I'm not going to get trapped in. Well, thank you very much. I'm <laughs> um, happy because, to be your weasel because <laughs> it's it's binary and okay. um, and it's neither. It's it's both deeply mm. both. I also, you know, I don't necessarily draw a distinction between the head and the heart. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's unuseful. I think there's lots of data to show how interrelated they are. Um, And I think a lot of intelligences, Hmm. the most valuable intelligences don't come from your head. Mm Mm-hmm. You know that the the psychologists don't call it the monkey mind for no reason mm-hmm. um, and y- if you look at other sources of intelligence, intuition, feel, gut feel, those are all bodily and heart based. so mm. I, I take a bit of a it's a nice controversial question and I appreciate it. I'm just I, I think there's a nuanced answer that sits a little bit above that question with due respect.
1: Could the CEO, the modern CEO m- more be the nervous system then?
0: Well, it's so interesting you bring that up. I've got a colleague that literally runs her day through her central nervous system and she monitors it all the time and that is that is her cue to how she should respond and how she monitors herself, as I say. So I think as we start to learn more and more about the nervous system and particularly the brain, mm. I think leadership is going to change very, very fast over the next 25 years because... Doing leadership work solely through the lens of behavior is definitely not the best way to do it anymore. Mm. The behaviors are messy and hard to change. And if you can get into the neurology, which is a much more direct route to behavior change, mm. that's mm. what will be done. And it's not a territory that I'm a super expert on yet, um, but I can tell you- It's an you, exciting frontier. Yeah. Big time. Anyone is interested in leadership, should expect that the behavioral construct that it sits in now is not going to be the construct for much longer.
1: Ron, I know you love a beautiful question. Um having watched you facilitate groups and groups of big egos and and uh, lot lots of so, sort of lots of defensiveness often uh certainly when you're dealing with people that believe they're right about most things as as many CEOs do especially uh men like us what are some of the most beautiful questions you ask modern leaders or, or encourage them, obviously, to ask themselves? Could you maybe share the three most beautiful questions in Roan's library of beautiful questions? And, and then we'll, we'll sort of we'll, we'll end with, with a, a little bit of a discussion about exactly what it is that you do at the moment.
0: Cool. cool. Thanks, Mike. It's a, it's a lovely um, invitation. It's a beautiful question it's about beautiful, beautiful question. questions. Yeah. Question one, are you safe? Question two, what are your blind spots? Question three, is your ego under control? Question four. Sorry, those first three
1: questions sounded like my driving instructor. Like uh, literally, <laughs> yeah. Are you safe? Have you checked your blind spots? <laughs> Please don't accelerate. <laughs> oh, it's true. Actually, I didn't think of that. Um, I failed my
0: test twice. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'm lucky. Maybe I should think of less vehicle-oriented questions. But no, no, no. Th- it that was just my association. Bear with me. So, um, question four. What is your relationship with potential? Mm-hmm. Question five: How well integrated is your spouse in your work? Hmm. Interesting. I could go on, but that's five. Those are some of the beautiful questions you love to ask. I think so. I mean, what what do you think? Would those questions be compelling for you? Oh,
1: absolutely. I think you could spend you could spend hours just unpacking what safe means, because people generally start with, "Are you happy?" And that's a highly stigmatized word, right? So there's there's conditioned responses to that question. Are you safe is not a question that people who think they are responsible for other people's safety often ask themselves. Um, that's a really interesting
0: one. Yeah, sometimes I spin that into, are you worthy of someone's trust? Mm. But I think safe hits a bit harder.
1: Oh, that's interesting because I didn't read it that way at all. Oh, I didn't hear, are you a safe place or a safe person? I heard... Do you feel safe right now?
0: Ah, that's an equally good so question. I heard, it, I heard it completely differently. Well, that's an e- Yeah, that's an equally good question. Okay. Because imagine leading from a place of non-safety and what your central nervous system is doing then. Just how somebody interprets the question, well,
1: that's what makes a beautiful question, isn't it? Is that it can be interpreted in multiple ways and, and people will find themselves adding meaning to it. But I think, are you safe, is a great question because… You could interpret it as are you a safe destination for other people or
0: are you do you feel safe right now? Mm. Can I add my last two? Please. J- just for Please. the just for the benefit of your listeners. Is your strategy free of your bias? Hmm. And then my final one is what is your success hypothesis for your business? Hmm. Because that makes CEOs say, if I do this plus that plus that plus that plus that minus that and that I'm going to succeed hmm. or the business will succeed. Hmm. And that kind of acuity enables someone to go back and say, okay, so we we didn't do those things. That That's why we went wrong. And it also puts deep pressure on the CEO to have thought through the essential hypothesis of how a business might succeed as opposed to getting lost in the Yes, I've ticked the strategy box. Yes, I've ticked the innovation box. Yes, 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 yes. All of which are unrelated until you put them together. Mm. And it's the putting them together that CEOs that I work with haven't done. So they've gone through the laundry list, but where it all becomes organic and interlinked, that hasn't been done. And that's where businesses um, succeed and fail, when those pieces do or don't work together. How do people connect with you and what you're
1: doing right now Talk us a little bit just at a high level through through the different projects. Um,
0: and yeah, please let us know where we can find you online. Thank you. Um, you know, I haven't taken on a particularly easy thing by creating this character called CEO-ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and being a pioneer in a space isn't a comfortable and maybe it's not even a wise position to be in because you're always fighting at the head of the sort of attack. I have to maintain my eye on the long prize. Um, because the market's sort of catching up right now. And most CEOs don't see the causality between system leader and system. They don't Mm. don't make that link. So um, yeah, I'm sort of being an advocate of that movement, I suppose. Um, What I'm learning is that some CEOs are really, really well suited to me and some aren't. And that's important for me to know who my tribe is and isn't. But in the main, Mike, um, I feel completely compelled and energized about the movement that I'm trying to create. And I think if I stay true to my word, if I'm authentic in my work, if I work hard, my tribe's going to find me. And it's just, a, it's just a question of staying patient for that. So the work I do with CEOs, you can find at uh, the CEO Consulting, mm-hmm. And the business that I own, Lockstep, which is a leadership consultancy within which the CEO project resides is also just lockstep.consulting.
1: Okay, so lockstep.consulting. Uh, also so the lockstep.co.za gets to the same place, it does. and then the CEO Project as well. Yes, sir. Super. I, I imagine you're on, on the LinkedIn as well. I am on the People LinkedIn. People can find you there People as well. Can
0: find me. I, okay. I write so, very, very. Um, I don't use the word prodigiously because it suggests that I love my own writing, but I write a lot about CEO. Frequently, <laughs> frequently. There we go. Um, I write a lot about CEOship, and it's all on my website. I write an article a week.
1: Well, thank you for taking time. Thank you for being patient while waiting for me to to arrive to our two o'clock recording at quarter past two. Especially, thank you for teaching me something about the importance of beautiful questions and how they can change the dynamic of a group and an opportunity to facilitate. It's something that I hold very dear as an experience that I've learned from you and, and watched you develop. So um, thank you for that. And thanks for making time here in Joburg. I look forward to having small quantities
0: of wine in Cape Town with you soon. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. And for your listeners, just to finish with this, um, the host of this podcast was, possibly is, and might well be again, a very exceptional CEO. <laughs> thank and, you And much. I know that from from first-hand experience and from what many other people have said. So congratulations on your body of work, Mike. Thanks very much, sir. Cool. Take care.
1: You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible, and remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king.